How's everybody today? Now I got to do a quick poll. How many of you love the fact that it snowed in May? All you skiers, I know who you are. And then how many of you are just so over it? So you guys won. Okay. But be nice to the, the folks that like the cold and the snow because it's beautiful out. Yes, we are, we are so glad to be in the house of the Lord together. Thankful for the day that he has made, the day that we just have life and breath and can move. And it doesn't matter if it snows in May or not. The Lord is still good, right? Well, hey, just a quick reminder, uh, if you need prayer for anything or if, if we can serve you in any way or you just want to find out uh, how you can get involved here at Cornerstone, uh, there are little connection cards in your seat backs in front of you. Uh, please fill those out. Let us know who you are, what you need prayer for, um, and there's a place to check on there if you want that to go out to the prayer team uh, or not or you want to keep that confidential just for, for us. And then you can drop those in the offering boxes that are on the walls next to the double doors as you leave. So... That's just one way we want to be available to serve you. And, and as always, if you, if you know I've been saying this for weeks, and uh, thankfully, uh, I haven't eaten dinner at my house this week. And that's not a bad thing. That's because y'all have responded to the call to invite us over. And so we had some incredible meals this weekend. Thank you, friends. Uh, just a delight to get to know you all and uh, come hang out with us. We, I want to get to know you guys and be a part of your lives and... Uh, yeah, let my kids run around your house. It'll be great. <laughs> Actually, they're pretty well-behaved kids, so you don't have too much to worry about, you know. Well, this morning we are in week three of a seven-week series through the book of Titus. So if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, let's open up together to the book of Titus. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16 this morning. And if you need a Bible, please put up your hands. We have ushers that would love to bring you a copy of God's Word uh, it's good to hold it in your hands and, yes, good to have it. And you could tap it if you need, that's fine. That's fine as well. There's something about a book, I just like books. So. so Paul has been writing to his dear friend and his traveling companion, Titus. And, and Titus was left on the island of Crete to pastor and serve this group of house churches that they started uh, after they preached the gospel there in Crete. Now, Paul has some concern for these Cretan Christians because as a society, uh, they were not very well thought of. Uh, in fact, what they were famous for was their immorality, their sinfulness. They were really good at being sinners. Which means that these new converts in Crete were, were smack dab in the middle of this sinful culture. Sounds a little familiar maybe? And Paul was very concerned that this sinful culture would make its way into the church and that the believers there would reflect not the life of holiness that Christ had called them to, but the life of sinfulness that their society was known for. He wanted the Cretans to be different than the culture around them. He wanted them to live as disciples of the Lord Jesus and be an influence and a positive effect on that culture rather than being influenced by the immorality all around them. But much of what Paul writes in his letter to Titus has to deal with that very concern. 
that all believers would live in light of the gospel of God's grace in such a way that it would change their society, the culture that they lived within. So let me ask you a tough question. Does Incline Village look different because we're here? Because of the way we choose to live in this community? Is the light of the gospel shining in this place because of the lives that we have submitted to Christ? Now last week, I'm going to leave that open, Eddie, you can, you can reflect. I see the faces. It's okay. It's okay. We'll get there. Last week, we looked at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And Paul, in that passage, described the qualifications of elders. Uh, and elders that he wanted Titus to appoint in every one of the house churches on the island. And Paul wanted to make sure that these, these men had spiritual qualifications, character. So that they would be able to teach and disciple the members of the church to live in holiness and godliness. And that they would be able to combat any false teaching that had come in and was trying to make its way into the congregation of these believers. Now Paul knew that these men needed to be the kind of example that the Cretans needed to see to live in this immoral culture that they lived in. They needed to be that kind of life, they needed to live that kind of life that the Cretans could look at them and say, I can follow them as they follow Jesus. Now there are four things I want to point out in our passage this morning. In verses 10 and 11, Paul is going to tell Titus to silence every false teacher. And then in verses 12 and four, through 14, he tells Titus and the elders to encourage sound doctrine that leads to holy living. And then in verse 15 and 16, he's going to tell Titus to make sure he helps believers understand what that process of sanctification looked like. What does it mean to grow in holiness? And then lastly, he wants them to understand that the way that they choose to live their lives reveals what's actually in their hearts. So we're going to unpack all those things uh, in greater detail here. But let me ask you to stand together, church, and let's, let's read these words from Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. The words will be on the screen for you to follow along. And let's read them together with one voice. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let's pray together. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, uh, even when it says hard things like this. And Lord, I pray today that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit's power, that you would mold us and change us into the image of Christ, that we would truly be a light in this community, that our culture would be influenced and changed by the lives we live and not the other way around. So help us, God, we pray. Teach us by your precious word. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, church. You may be seated. So here in verses 10 through 16, Paul is giving us, giving Titus one of the reasons of why it's so important to appoint elders in churches. And in verses 10 and 11, he tells him that elders are necessary to silence false teachers. He warns Titus. He says, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So Titus is telling this pastor, this church planner, to make sure that what is preached and taught in the church is in accordance with sound doctrine. In accordance with God's word. And Paul has no tolerance at all. His language is heavy here. He has no tolerance for any teaching that deviates from scripture. And he's telling Titus that elders in those churches are to silence those false teachers. To not even allow them to speak. He says they must silence them. And in verse 10, he tells Titus that these false teachers have three specific character traits. First, Paul says they are insubordinate. Right? Insubordinate. So how do we know who these guys are? Paul's going to define it for us. Now, your translation might say that they are rebellious men. They are rebellious because they do not submit to the authority of Scripture. What is our authority? What is the true word of God? It's the Bible. And false teachers that say, we don't need to submit to this, must be silenced, according to Paul. Now, a few verses later, Paul tells us that these false teachers were teaching Jewish myths and the commandments of men. They, they were promoting extra-biblical teachings, things outside of Scripture that they were adding on to Scripture for the people to, to follow Jesus. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must do this and this and this. Along with the word, that's good. But they're adding on these other commandments. They believe that if someone was going to follow Jesus, then it wasn't enough to submit to what God said in his word. They had to add on all these other regulations and rules. And Paul says this type of teaching rebels against the authority of scripture. Because the Bible tells us that God's word is enough. And we don't need anything more than what God has already revealed to us in his word. In fact, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says this. That all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. 
See, God's word is sufficient to grow us in grace and equip us to do the works of God. These false teachers were saying to, to these believers in Crete, if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to be holy, then you need to also follow these Jewish myths, these man-made commandments. You need to obey what they say, even though they, they were things that God expressly didn't command in his word. Now, it's always easy to identify a false teacher because any time they're preaching something outside of Scripture and calling themselves Christians, they're false teachers. You cannot add to God's word. And when you hear that kind of teaching, turn away from it. Because Paul's saying these are rebellious men who are unwilling to submit to the authority of God's word, who, co who don't conform their teaching to the truth of the Bible. Secondly, notice Paul calls them empty talkers and deceivers. Now the Greek word for empty talkers, that's two words in English, is just one word. And it literally means those who speak with vanity or worthlessness. You know, those people that just talk, they don't really say anything. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to give you examples because that's not good. But big talk, big words, no substance. They're just bags of wind. They're deceivers who are peddling false doctrine. They're trying to ensnare you with their many words. And they don't just reject scripture, they add to it. And what they add has nothing of value. Uh, the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones Lloyd once wrote this. He says, we have somehow got a hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right things. The people who sound good, who, are, who, who sound like just close enough, they're the ones that are the most dangerous to the church. Because they're promoting something that potentially you could think is true. It might even sound like it's in Scripture. And there's all sorts of things we believe about God that aren't actually in Scripture. But people who, do, who sound good, who are close to the truth, but who don't actually speak the truth of God's word, are more dangerous than those who blatantly preach errors. Right? Those people are easy to, to, to snuff out, right? The ones who sound just like they, they're preaching the gospel almost. Those are the ones we need to be most aware of. These are the empty talkers, the deceivers. Now, Paul says that these false teachers were especially present in the party of the circumcision is what he calls them. Now these were probably followers of Jesus who had a Jewish background. And instead of keeping uh, Jewish myths, or they required people to keep these Jewish myths and man-made traditions as a requirement of their faith. Now, not all these false teachers would have been Jewish Christians, but perhaps a large group was present there in Crete, and that's why Paul is addressing them specifically. But Paul knows that if we don't believe what the Bible says, if we don't believe and trust in God's word, then we're going to struggle to live the Christian life. 
Because what happens is we tack on all these man-made rules and regulations, and then when we fail, we think, man, my faith is just garbage. My relationship with Jesus is now affected. And he's saying, throw all that out. Throw all that out and stick to what the word of God says. There's enough stuff for us to live in here that's hard enough without adding on any more. Paul's reminding Titus that false teaching always leads to false living. And Paul tells Titus that this type of teaching should not be tolerated or allowed to continue in the church. Now, when I read this, I thought, man, these words must sound so difficult in a pluralistic society like ours. Right, because what do we believe? Oh, everyone's allowed to just think whatever they want. The truth's not absolute. God's word, you know, it's just how you interpret it. Is this where we are at, church? Because Paul seems to indicate that there is one absolute truth, and it is God's truth. And I wonder if we've allowed false teachers to creep in so subtly that we now can't even differentiate truth from falsehood. And it's, it's just a call for us to know the word more. To stand firm on what it says and not be pulled in by the, the infinite number of false teachers that are out there. And I hate to say that, but it's really true. And unfortunately, I think a lot of them have my job in other places. And that breaks my heart. I've been to churches and I think, what are you talking about? You didn't even open the Bible. You didn't even preach the word of God. Well, you have one job. Well, more than one job, but it's your primary function. People always joke, well, what do pastors actually do, you know? We just preach the Bible, that's it. But I think, I think Paul's words sound really harsh to us. Because we've accepted this idea that everyone is allowed their truth. And we've neglected this idea because we don't want to offend people. But we've relegated them to false doctrine and false living and, frankly, to hell. Because there is one way, one truth, and one life, and his name is Jesus. There is no other way to get to the Father except through him. And I think the church has become a little too soft. Now, I'm not saying we should be bashing people with the word of God. We still speak the truth in love. But the tolerance that we have is the tension here. We've tolerated false doctrine and false teaching for far too long. Paul lived in this pluralistic society himself. And he was passionate about having right doctrine because he knew how important it was for your faith to grow. If you cling to false teaching, then your faith is going to grow the wrong way. To grow in grace, you need the sound teaching of God's word. Teaching that is grounded firmly in what God has told us in the scriptures. And Paul makes it very clear that a false teacher should never be given a platform to lead people's, God's people away from the truth of his word. Now Paul continues in verses 12 through 14 saying, 
This is the, our favorite section of the, because we, we chuckle at it every time, right? One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and this testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Uh, this is, again, I, sometimes I just appreciate the bluntness of Paul's writing. Right? You, you always know where you stand with Paul. If you're, go, if you're on the wrong track, he's going to say, that's wrong. But I, I, I often like to think about, like, have you ever imagined being the recipient of one of these letters? Like, in person? Like, somebody brings you this letter and you're sitting there in your church and they, they read, you know, imagine Paul's writing a letter to, to Cornerstone Community Church, Incline Village, Nevada. And after this short greeting, you hear these words. A prophet of their own from Incline Village once said, people from Incline are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And let me tell you, it's completely true. How would you respond to that? You, that's not nice, Paul. You might be a wee bit offended, right? Except what if Paul was writing something that was true about your society and your culture? Would you recognize it? Would you allow it to change who you are, how you lived, what you thought, the way you interacted in this community? Paul know that these Cretan Christians would, would recognize the sinfulness of their own culture and be willing to set that aside to live differently. Did he know that their loyalty was first to Jesus Christ? Knowing that their citizenship was kept safe in heaven for them. And that they could take this kind of critique and let it mold them and change them into the image of Christ. I think that's what he's doing. You know, he, he viewed these people as his children. And sometimes as fathers, we need to come alongside and encourage and build up and, and, and take our children along. And other times they just need a swat. Whether you agree with that or not, you know, it's another conversation. But sometimes we need discipline from our spiritual mentors to keep us on the right track. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here to these Cretan Christians. He's concerned that these believers are going to fall into the trap of following and believing that the culture around them is how they are called to live. And I'll tell you, Christian, it's easy for us to fall into that same trap. How many times have you caught yourself saying something, thinking something, or doing something, and you wonder, where did that come from? Oh, that was, that was what my unbelieving neighbor told me. Or that coworker that is an atheist. And I just took it and lived it and believed it. It's easy to take those temptations and put them in our hearts and let them become part of who we are. And Paul's reminding us of how important it is to constantly be on guard from that kind of influence. Christians, instead of doing what Scripture says is right, 
often look more like the culture around us. But living like this culture will never help you grow in holiness. It will never help you become more like Jesus. It cannot foster in you a faith that leads to godliness. Only God's word can do that in your heart. Only the power of the Holy Spirit, as you read God's word and take it in, can change who you are. And I, and I wonder, in the church today, as we take God's word in, do we say to the Holy Spirit, mold me and change me into Christ's image? Not into what I want it to be or what I wanted to say, but what, what actually looks like Jesus. And I think most, most of us are afraid when a brother or sister comes to us and says, hey, brother, sister, this area of your life doesn't line up with Scripture. We don't like that because we're individuals. You know, this is my faith. Just stay out of it. But I've said it before and I'll say it again. This faith is not your own. It is a group project. We didn't like group projects in school, but unfortunately that's just part of the deal. It's something that we come alongside of one another to spur each other on to love and good deeds. You cannot go at the Christian faith on your own. We need each other. And we need each other to step in to the areas of our lives where there's a deficiency, where there's a sinfulness, and to say to that brother or sister in love with a relationship that you already have. This is not just for strangers to do, right? This is why building relationships in the church is super important. Because you have to earn that right to speak truth into somebody's life. So the relationship is first, then the truth comes, and then brothers and sisters, it's up to us to say, hey, I received that truth. I received that. I have a, one of my dearest brothers uh, in Southern California has earned that right with me. And, I, and I'll tell you, even though when he calls me out, it hurts my pride a little bit because I think, oh, I'm so holy. But he calls me out in love, and I know he loves me. But he'll say, hey, you were a jerk yesterday. What, what was your deal? And he'll just straight call me out. And as I reflect and as I've learned in my slow maturity <laughs> towards Jesus, that those moments are a gift from the Lord. Because that truth spoken in love then shapes me and helps cut off those, those rough edges. And it makes me more like Jesus. And I find myself the next time I get in that same rut, I remember his words. And his call back to Christ-like living. And brothers and sisters, we need that. We need to give one another permission to speak truth in our lives. Even when it hurts a little bit. Knowing that it is for our good. How many of us have been helped by a wiser, more mature Christian in our, in our Christian faith? We've all had someone come alongside of us and point us in the right direction. And Paul is reminding us that that is also one of the roles of the elders. So when the elders call you in and it's time to have a conversation, don't freak out. They're there because they love you and they want to point you to Jesus. And they must be willing to confront and call 
each one of us out as we live as believers in this immoral culture. Now, if you look at verse 15, Paul also makes it clear that he wants us to understand this process of sanctification. And sanctification is just a fancy word for becoming more like Jesus, holy living. And in case you weren't sure, you don't get saved and then just become holy the next day, sadly. It's a process. And, and, and I'm of the opinion that it takes your whole life to get there. And you probably won't, not all the way there still. But one day we will be perfected and we will stand with the Lord in perfect holiness and in his glory. And all that sinfulness will go away. But until that time, we are growing in Christ's likeness. And Paul wants the elders of these churches to understand the way that the Holy Spirit works to grow a Christian in their faith. I'm going to start with verse 15, just the first part there. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. Now, what, what is Paul talking about here? He's telling you that because there are false teachers in the church, telling you that to be a good Christian, a really good Christian, you need to believe things and do things not commanded by Scripture. And he's reminding you that that's not how the process of sanctification works. It's not, Lord, I did this and this and this and this and look at how good I am. No, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we are made alive in Christ Jesus. You are holy because you have the holiness of Christ, not because you do a lot of good works. You can never earn salvation from the Lord. Paul is reminding us that sanctification, growing in holiness in our faith, never works by adding to the Bible or taking away from the Bible. So he, he, he tells us right off the bat, to the pure, all things are pure. <clears throat> now he says something similar in Romans chapter 14. And if you want to study that passage a little later, you can put your bookmark there and come back to it. But in Romans 14, he's talking about things that are either neither forbidden by Scripture or commanded by Scripture. Right? How are we as Christians to handle those gray areas of the Christian walk? Now in Romans 14, one of the struggles these believers were having in the early church was how a Christian should view the use of meat that had been used as an offering and sacrifice to a pagan deity. Were you allowed to eat that meat? Were you allowed to even buy it? Some Christians felt that a believer should never go into the marketplace and buy meat that had been used in a pagan ceremony. It was uh, defiled. Other Christians had no problem buying that meat because it was a little bit cheaper. And knowing that they, they weren't participating in this pagan practice. Uh, they weren't worshiping those deities. They were just using it for food. And so this discussion came up. Who, which side is right? God didn't say you couldn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. He didn't say you couldn't. It's, un, it, it's, it's unclear in Scripture. And these false teachers in Crete were teaching the believers there that if they wanted to grow in their faith, then they needed to abstain from all these other things, even though God's word might tell you not to abstain. Now, I, I, I'll use the, the example of alcohol because it's the easiest one. 
Scripture does not make anything about consuming alcohol except that not to get drunk. Now, there are many Christians who come from backgrounds where that's a struggle. Dads or moms who abused it. And you have that proclivity in your heart and you know it. And if the Holy Spirit convicts you when you put that drink to your lips, guess what? You shouldn't. That's between you and the Lord, though. For the rest of us, you have freedom. You have freedom to decide when and how you use that as long as you are doing it unto the glory of God. The problem that comes is when we tell each other what they must do. Well, I can't do it so you also don't get to. Or I do it so here, party on. That's not how it works. Those kinds of situations, Scripture tells us, we deal with those of our own accord, with, with the conviction we have from the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul's uh, trying to tell us here. If you can't eat meat because it's been sacrificed to an idol, stop eating it. End of story. But don't tell your brothers and sisters in Christ that they also can't participate. Because you know what, maybe they're on a fixed income and they, they need the cheaper meat. And they're just looking at it as food. And it's for them it's freedom. Now Paul doesn't mean that things that God has forbidden in his word have somehow become pure because we're believers. Right? Sinful practices are still just that. But when God's word says you need to abstain, but you, have, you use your freedom to, to participate, that's sin. And when he tells you that you're free to do it and you command others to also not do it, that's also sin. We actually call that legalism. Jerry Bridges writes this, he says, Legalism insists on conformity to man-made religious rules and requirements, which are often unspoken but are nevertheless very real. There are far too many instances within Christendom where our traditions and rules are, in practice, more important than God's commands. And we've seen this throughout church history. Christians aren't allowed to dance, smoke, drink, do any of those kind of things. Because they're, they're sinful and evil. Well, why are they sinful and evil? Because culture told them they were. God's word is unclear. It does not speak of any of those things. In fact, it gives us lots of examples where David danced and had a, had a party and had a great time. If you are a believer, the way we grow more like Christ is by allowing the spirit to convict our hearts when we read his word. And if you want to know what the truth is, read the word and ask the Holy Spirit, convict my heart where it needs to be convicted. And give me freedom where, it's, where I have freedom. But legalism, following man-made commandments, is never capable of producing real Christian holiness in our hearts. In fact, most often what it does is it breaks relationships that you have in the church. So Paul writes to us, to the pure, all things are pure. They're pure to the pure, why? Because the Spirit's job is to work in our hearts 
through the power of God's word. Now, if, if your response is, well, the Holy Spirit just talks to me and that's how I know. Well, the, my question is, does it line up with God's word or not? Because you don't know if that's a spirit or a demon. And the only way to tell is to test it against Scripture. We are never sanctified by keeping man-made commandments. We are sanctified from the inside out by the Holy Spirit working in our hearts in accordance with the Word of God. And the Holy Spirit works through Scripture as He convicts our conscience, changes our desires, and transforms our hearts from the inside out so that the way that we live then reflects the inward change of our heart. This, church, is the process of sanctification. I'm over time, but I'm going to quickly finish this last little section here in verses 15 through 16 because Paul hasn't finished yet. It would be nice to skip this part because this is the hardest part. <laughs> it says, to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. What Paul is telling the elders here is that our actions reveal what is in our hearts. The way you behave is a testimony of what you actually believe, not the other way around. You can profess all day that Jesus Christ is Lord. And one day the Lord might say, depart from me. I never knew you. If you want to know what's going on in the heart of a Christian, look at their life. Look at their actions. Look at what they love, where they spend their time. Look at their priorities. Look at their behavior, the way that they love their neighbor, their love for Scripture and their love for the Lord. Because if you look at a person's actions, you can see who they really are. Because our actions always reveal what is hidden deep in our hearts. Your actions testify to what you actually believe. Now Paul is simply saying something that Jesus said often. Matthew 7.20 says, you will recognize them by their fruit. It's not, you will recognize them because they said they're believers. You will recognize them because their actions line up with who they say they are. Paul's reminding us that our actions always point to the depths of our hearts. Our lifestyle reveals what we actually believe. And just as following man-made rules cannot produce growth and holiness, where the spirit is working, there will always be a clear picture of God's grace in the way we live, think, and speak. Do your actions, do your thoughts, and your words line up with who Christ has called you to be? Paul's words are significantly practical for us and hard because we live in this horrendously immoral culture and our great temptation is to try to keep one foot in the world and one foot in God's kingdom. But that's not possible. 
You can't, you can't try and live just a little bit in the Christian life. You know, I go to church on Sundays and I, I, I drive, drop my tithe and I pray a prayer at, at dinner. But then the rest of the time I do what I want. That's not how it works. Christians are called to live like they have been purchased and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And the only way that you can do that is by reading and following God's word. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray, church. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when the words are heavy and they convict our hearts. But I pray that conviction leads us to change. That we would be challenged by, by the things that we hear to examine our hearts and our lives and say, Lord, Show me if there's any wicked way within me and cleanse me from within. The beautiful thing about that truth, Lord, is that you always answer that prayer. You never turn away a sinner who seeks repentance. And Lord, we know it's not a, a call to live perfectly. Many of us will fail. We will all fail on a regular basis. But with our eyes firmly fixed on you, Lord, we our hope and our trust is that you are molding us and shaping us into the image of your son, Jesus. And for that this morning we say thank you. It's in God's precious name we pray. Amen.